sky falling down, falling day after day, out of the town. Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitra Perovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, my guest is Yaroslav Trefimov, Ukrainian-born Wall Street Journal's chief foreign affairs correspondent, who is out with a new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence, which is the history of Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine. Yara, welcome to the show and congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'm happy to be here. Well, Yara, you've been reporting on this conflict since the very beginning. And I know you've covered a lot of wars, including Iraq and Afghanistan. But this one, of course, is very personal to you uh, because of your heritage. And as you may know, I've been very public very early on, kind of around early to mid-December of 2021, saying very publicly, including on Twitter, that Vladimir Putin was very likely to invade Ukraine later that winter. And I know you were in Kiev at the time. When did you personally become convinced that Putin would launch this awful invasion? Because you were talking to people in leadership, and many of them did not really believe that this would take place, right? Well, I became convinced uh, that it's likely to happen when I came to Ukraine. That's the reason why I came to Ukraine. Because up until then, I was in Afghanistan, and I was there when Kabul fell and dealing with Afghanistan. So in January 2022, I came to Kiev. And as it's, which is about the same time as uh, CIA Director Burns came to Kiev to warn Zelensky and the rest of the government about all the intelligence indicating Russian plans to decapitate the Ukrainian government and to launch an all-out invasion. There was a lot of denial in the Ukrainian society just because, and government, because it was just so unthinkable. And logically, you know, they were not completely wrong because the size of the Russian force that was amassed on the borders was not that big. It was, what, about 200,000 troops. And it only made sense if you believe that the Ukrainians will not resist very much, which is exactly what Putin seems to have believed. You know, these troops were carrying parade uniforms. And I remember this conversation with an advisor, with one of the senior members of the Zelensky administration, who was telling me this, like, this troop's not enough even just to take Kiev, let alone all of Ukraine. Uh, I think what we know now is that the Ukrainian military was preparing uh, to an extent, and they had a plan uh, which they didn't share with the political leadership or with the U.S. administration. So wait, wait a second, you're saying that the Ukrainian military did not share their defense plans with Zelensky? Well, I don't know about Zelensky himself, but certainly many senior members of the civilian government didn't know exactly what the military plan was. And neither did the Pentagon. And you know, I'm quoting in the book a senior Pentagon official at the time was saying that all the plans that we were receiving from Kiev at the time were just deception. You know, in part, it's it's because of fear of Russian moles and leaks. And, you know, there were leaks uh, from within the Ukrainian government. But also we have seen in the last few years that there were leaks from the Pentagon as well. And, you know, a lot of people look at their defense plan. And obviously some things did work. But as you write in your book, Things got very, very close, right? As much as we make fun of Putin's three-day plan, the reality is that his troops, his airborne troops, almost got into Kiev, right? If they had been able to take Kostomol Airport, which was the key to this whole invasion, this airborne assault on Hostomol, which failed, 
in part because the Ukrainians were able to bomb the runways and prevent fixed wing aircraft from landing. But if they had landed on that uh, airstrip and drove into Kiev, things could have looked very differently. They could have potentially gotten to Bankova Street, where the Ukrainian government leaders were holed up, including Zelensky. They could have potentially captured or killed them. And that could have had huge repercussions for morale and the overall defense, right? I think I think the first day was really the pivotal day. And it was touching up. And I remember uh, driving towards Ostomel on that day, and the streets were empty. And we didn't run to any checkpoints until we got all the way to the bridge to Ostomel. And there was a firefight there. And on the way back, we saw these young volunteers of the territorial defense, just guys in jeans and, uh, you know, freshly issued Kalashnikovs, all bunched together next to the road, not having any weapons really that would stop an armored column. And I was just thinking that, you know, if if, if Russian tanks do arrive, uh, it will be a massacre. And, you know, we have seen similar situations in places like Kherson, where there was a massacre. All those volunteers were waiting for the Russians and with Molotov cocktails, and the Russians never got in range of the Molotov cocktails, just mowed them down with you know, heavy machine guns from their armored vehicles. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, the Russians did not take Kostomel. I mean, they, they, they took Kostomel, but it, by the time they took Kostomel, it was no longer usable as an airfield. And so the, the planes that were supposed to carry, you know, brigades of Russian airborne troops with all their uh, vehicles could not land there. And uh, by the time the Russian columns got to Kiev overland, Ukraine had already managed to move some of the brigades to defend the city and to mobilize other people and, and, and bring in artillery. And so the battle lines were drawn. And I think it was clear by day three that Kiev was not going to fall easily. And if Russia was not able to take it within the first week or two, it was also clear that it probably was not going to be able to take it at all. And what do you think happened in the South? Because despite the fact that the Russians encountered so much resistance in Kharkiv and Chernihiv in the north and obviously around Kiev, in the south, things went way better for them, right? They were able to take Kherson very, very quickly. The bridges were not blown. They were able to secure much of that land bridge. There was resistance in Mariupol, but they were able to surround it very, very quickly from both Crimea and Rostov sides coming in from, from the east. Why do you think they had so much success there and why the Ukrainians were so unprepared for that assault, which was clear was going to come, right? They were building up forces in Crimea. There was a lot of open source intelligence about that. It's very clear they were going to go down that route. I think if you look at where the battle lines were drawn and the front lines were drawn eventually, it's interesting how they often coincide with administrative boundaries. And so much was in the hands of local leadership. You know, because the Russians, again, did not expect much resistance. So if a mayor put a bunch of bulldozers and blew up a bridge somewhere, the Russians would stop there and try to go somewhere else. So in Kherson, there was a complete abdication. You know, the governor fled, you know, and the head of police fled, and then the uh, local intelligence service, the SBU, they basically worked for the Russians. And, you know, and, and they are you know, under investigation or in prison now. And so <laughs> Kherson was a unique case. And again, I remember talking to the mayor of the first village in the next region, Dnipro, Dnipropetrovsk, was saying, like, they just came here and we, you know, put barriers on the road and they stopped. And, and that gave us two or three days 
time for the Ukrainian military to come and take positions and prevent further movement. Um, I think the population in Kherson was not any more pro-Russian than the population in Sumy or in, in Geneva. It's just their local authorities failed them. And then, of course, the terrain in the north is much more conducive to the sort of guerrilla-style warfare that was carried out this first month. You know, basically what they made it impossible for the Russians to push through the supply convoys uh, through this strategy of a thousand cuts, you know, the Ukrainians would keep attacking them and attacking them <clears throat> and starving the forward units of uh, fuel, of food, and of ammunition. Because in the south, it's much more of an open steppe. There's really nowhere to hide. Whereas you Rather, there's no forests. forests. Uh, there's no, no, you know, just the terrain. And it's, it's also less populated. So, you know, it's just flat steppe with little villages at reasonably big distances between them. One of the really fascinating episodes that you write about in the book is these peace talks. And there's been a lot of discussions about what happened in that first month of the war when you had peace talks initially in Belarus and then later migrating to Istanbul in Turkey. And, you know, some of the critics of Ukraine here in the West have said, well, this was the opportunity for Ukraine to make a peace deal with Putin and end this war and the West stopped them, right? Uh, Boris Johnson came to Kiev and told Zelensky, don't take this deal. You really debunk a lot of those narratives. And probably the biggest one that you debunk is that the Russian demands went way beyond just neutrality for Ukraine, right? Not wanting to join NATO, which people like John Mearsheimer and others cite as the only reason why Putin would invade. So talk a little bit about the demands that Russians had placed on Ukraine in those negotiations. Well, I mean, there were two levels of demands at two different moments. There was the first round of talks in the very, very first days of the war in, in Gomel in Belarus on day four of the invasion, when Ukraine really had a gun to its head. And the Russian demands were nothing short of surrender. You know, they didn't just want a new government in Kiev and putting the so-called Nazis on trial, which meant anyone who resisted the Russians. They wanted the Ukrainian army to hand over all their heavy weapons. They wanted even the streets to be renamed, to, to strip them of, of the names of Ukrainian national heroes who had resisted Russia over the centuries, you know, all the way down to, you know, Hetman Mazepa for Peter the Great. And uh, the demands were much less stringent when it came to Istanbul, just because the Russian army by then had been routed around Kiev and was starting to retreat, you know, because of this, you know, several weeks of ambushes that made it impossible for them to sustain their logistics. But still, neutrality for Ukraine was a key Russian demand. But by neutrality, they did just mean that Ukraine will not be a member of NATO. It meant the end to Western weapon supplies and to the Western training of Ukrainian forces. It was really another word for Ukrainian disarmament, because part of that package was also a demand to drastically reduce the size of the Ukrainian armed forces and their heavy weapons. And there was no agreement in this. The document that Putin uh, waved in front of the cameras a month later showed, you know, in brackets, the two, the two different positions, so there was a huge gap still between them. And so... Uh, to many Ukrainians in government and in society at large, that demand for neutrality, a.k.a. disarmament, just meant that Russia wanted to make it easier for itself 
to regroup and try again in a year or two or three. And I think this combined with the discovery of the atrocities in Bucha, literally a day or two after the Istanbul uh, talks, made it evident to many Ukrainians that you know, the Russian goal hasn't changed and they still want to wipe out all, all of Ukraine and that it's actually prepared to be you know, quite genocidal about it in a way, you know, with this level of atrocities that I think many Ukrainians didn't expect the Russians uh, to carry out uh, in a country whose population, according to Putin, is the same people as the Russians. What about this narrative that Johnson came to Kiev, the first leader to come to Kiev during the war, and that he is the one that pressured Zelensky? You looked into this as well. Any credible evidence supporting that? Well, I mean, Johnson did come to Kiev, and I did speak to Johnson, and he told me that, yes, I came to Kiev, and I was worried about these talks, and I sat down with Volodymyr, and I told him that you know any deal you sign with Putin will be a disgrace because he will just bank it and try again. But I think there wasn't much persuasion that was necessary because if you look at what Zelensky himself said on the visit to Bucha more than a week before that meeting, he said the same things. He said, after we have seen what the Russian military has done here, how can you talk with these people? How can you ever trust them? And so uh, it's not like Boris Johnson came to Kiev and twisted Zelensky's arms. You know, Zelensky himself, after the military victory uh, around Kiev, was convinced that accepting any limitation on Ukraine's ability to defend itself would be suicidal. Yeah, and I, I can tell you, you know, from my own visit and uh, discussions with folks in really across Ukraine, even though these days there's quite a lot of depressed attitudes about the way things are going, the delayed aid, the shortage of ammunition, there's almost a resignation that, that I hear from people that, well, as tough as it gets, we really have no choice but to fight. It's not that we want to fight. It's not that we want to risk our lives and die potentially in this war, but the Russians will just keep on coming. And there is no peace deal to be had because they ultimately want to destroy our country, right? And it seems like they understood that very early on once this full-scale invasion was launched that you can't really have a peace deal with this man, not just because of his immediate demands, but the appreciation that he really wants to decimate this country, take complete ownership of it. This is not you know, a debate about which language is going to be taught in the Donbass and whether it's going to be Russian predominantly or Ukrainian, that this was about control of this country, right? I think it's more than that. I think, I think there was an understanding that, that Putin's Russia seeks to wipe out not just the Ukrainian government, but Ukraine as a state and the Ukrainian people as a separate people, as a culture, <clears throat> biologically wipe out, just by mass murder. You know, because what we have seen in uh, Bucha, we have seen it only because the Russians were pushed out. But the level of death and, and destruction in places like Mariupol, where the Russian military and authorities just bulldozed the entire neighborhoods with body in them, bodies in them, you know, tens of thousands died there. You know, the true extent of what was happening in the territories that remain occupied does remain unknown. And, you know, we have seen just couple of days ago, you know, and the former Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, who is the head of the ruling party of Russia, who is the deputy national security advisor, saying that, you know, Ukrainians have a choice 
they either become Russians or will be exterminated with their families. And the existence of Ukraine is, as a state, even a state friendly to Russia, is a mortal threat to every Ukrainian. So, you know, there's pretty open genocidal language coming out of the Kremlin. And when you look at the last year, this counteroffensive that was clearly incredibly overhyped, first and foremost in Kiev itself, you know, you had rhetoric coming out of Budanov, the head of military intelligence, and even Zelensky saying that this war could be over by Christmas, you could take Crimea, etc. And that really went against a lot of the analysis that was being done by military analysts, including the, the discussions we've had on this podcast about how tough this would be, and that the complete end of the war last year was highly unlikely. Do you think that was a huge mistake that they made, not just internationally building up expectations for this counteroffensive, but also domestically? Because when it became clear in Kiev itself that this offensive was failing in mid to late fall of last year, I was hearing from people that they were getting very, very depressed and sort of shocked that this year was not going to be the year when the war ends. I think, uh, obviously, expectation management was a huge problem. It wasn't the only problem. I think there was also a problem with the uh, some of the tactical approaches, with the level of uh, level F and, and content of training for these new brigades uh, that were uh, deployed for, uh, for the offensive. But at the end of the day, you know, Ukraine had to try to liberate occupied territory. And I think there was political consensus that that must be done. Now, should have waited, should have pressed for better weapons and for, you know, wait until they have the F-16. It was a very valid point. Uh, Ukraine had this miraculous success in Kharkiv the previous year. And some people were hoping for a repeat for the Russian army to collapse the way it did. Kharkiv obviously didn't because the Russians learned from their mistakes and also they, you know, they mobilized and they had hundreds of thousands more troops and they spent uh, the winter digging and preparing the Soroviki line and all the fortifications. But what we are now seeing also is the changing nature of war with through all the new technologies, this dramatic expansion of the role that the drones play, all kinds of drones in this. Uh, and we see that neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians have really been able to move much. Uh, because the Russians also are on the offensive for the last uh, few months. And uh, honestly, their performance is, is not any better than, than what the Ukrainian performance was during the Ukrainian offensive. But, you know, Yar, my big problem with this counteroffensive was always that it seemed like a tactical operation rather than a strategic operation. Because the problem that I always had is that if even if you imagine it would have been wildly successful and achieved its goals of getting to the Sea of Azov, cutting off the land bridge to Crimea. The trouble I had is, why would that end the war? That simply moves the front line, right? And even if you're able to target the bridge, because you're much closer to it now, although still a big question whether you can actually destroy it, even if you position yourself in, let's say, Berdyansk on the coast of the Azov Sea. Or even if you manage to invade Crimea, which, by the way, would be a really, really complicated operation, right? There's lots of forces there. And even if, let's say, you capture Crimea, which, which wasn't even the, the, the target of the offensive, why would the war end? 
right? Again, it seems like the, this focus of just liberating the land, which you certainly can understand, first and foremost, liberating the people that are there, they're living under Russian oppression and being tortured and, and so forth. You want to do that, but positioning that as a way to end the war was always something that I thought was quite misguided. And, and the problem that I always had with that counteroffensive is that certainly it was important in terms of its goals tactically, but as a way to end the war, I don't think it ever had a chance because even in the situation where Ukraine takes every inch or every centimeter of its land, Donbass, Crimea, everything to the 2014 borders, all it does is move the front line. And for Putin, this has now become an existential war. And I think the only way you can end this war is by putting pressure on him and his elites, which means that the war has to be fought not just in Ukraine itself, but in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Right now, they're not feeling this war, right? Unlike the people living in Kiev, where they're seeing missiles flying into their cities and electricity going out and the rest of it. And that's where I think the focus was misguided. It's not that they shouldn't have done the counteroffensive, but they should have been thinking, how do we hit Moscow? How do we hit St. Petersburg? And not just with drones that carry very little payload and have been more of a nuisance for, for the Russians, but how do you get ramped up missile productions with real payloads, real distance, right? And actually start hitting critical infrastructure, military infrastructure in Russia itself and putting real pressure on the regime. Well, everything you're saying is contained in the article that General Zaluzhin, the head of Ukraine Armed Forces, published, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in August 2022. What he wrote there is that even if we take all land, the war will not stop because the Russians have this superiority in long-range fires that they can hit anything in Ukraine. And therefore, the way forward is to center of gravity of the war is the fact that the ordinary Russians do not experience its consequences. And therefore, the way forward for Ukraine is to bring the war to Russia. I think there are problems with that. Uh, one of them is obviously none of the Western weapons given to Ukraine is permitted to be used on Russian soil. So the Russian artillery can be shelling Kharkiv, but the Ukrainians are not allowed to use the American-supplied artillery for counter-battery fire, and are certainly not allowed to use the cruise missiles that Ukraine received from the UK and France uh, to strike targets in Russia. Even as Russian cruise missiles from North Korea and uh, and from Russia's own industry keep keep flying into Ukrainian cities. So you have this disparity that is dictated by the international conditioning of how Ukraine can operate. And uh, then also there is the issue of capacity. Ukraine has been working on developing its own missiles. You know, they've been trying to, to upgrade the S-200s and they have been firing them at targets in Russia with limited success. And they have been trying to develop this new industry, which is not completely inconsequential. I mean, they have taken out some Russian aircraft at the remote bases inside Russia. Uh, I think they, they have had successful strikes against uh, fuel facilities and other military-relevant infrastructure in areas of Russia adjoining uh, Ukraine. 
but uh, I think again here the, 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 there is too much diplomatic pressure in Ukraine and discouragement by the US and other countries from carrying out spectacular operations in places like Moscow. Yeah, but you know, when you look at the Black Sea, which I think is the underrated success that the Ukrainians have had in last year, I literally just posted a thread on Twitter or X about this, that the grain exports through the sea are almost at the levels they were pre-war. And it's now clear that the main reason why the Russians have not targeted that civilian shipping, which they clearly have the capability to do, they still have naval aviation, they still have coastal missile batteries that could target those ships quite easily. But the reason is that the Ukrainians started to threaten the port of Novorossiysk, where the Russians have moved a lot of their both naval ships, but also serves as a critical export point for Russian oil exports and other exports as well. And when the Ukrainians demonstrated the capability with their indigenous drones, maritime drones, to reach Novorossiysk, to hit a tanker and a naval ship there, the Russians got the message that if we target your shipping, our shipping may get targeted. And since then, not only have you been able to see this uh, flood of civilian ships of all flags, by the way, I think over 20 countries have been coming into the ports of Odessa and leaving with grain and, and other exports. You've had Western insurance companies that have been insuring that. So it's quite clear that the, both the shippers and the insurance companies are getting quite a bit of satisfaction that the Russians will not target that shipping. And it seems like that mutual deterrence, we won't target you, you won't target us, has worked. And I wonder if the Ukrainians have been putting more effort in the development of indigenous weapons, and because you're absolutely right that the Western weapons will not be allowed to be used against Russian territory. But as you mentioned, they have indigenous missiles. They have missiles like Grom-2 that have, at least on paper, 500-kilometer range. Those missiles can be holding Russian assets at risk. And perhaps, you know, if you can ramp up their production, you can make a deal where missiles will not be flying into Kiev, because if they do, missiles will be flying into Moscow. Yeah, and you rightly said that the reason why the grain deal, uh, sorry, the grain shipment, and overall traffic to the port of Odessa has reopened is this deterrence. And because on one hand, the Ukrainian military has used Western weapons to significantly degrade the Black Sea Fleet, you know, using lobbing cruise missiles into uh, Sevastopol and other, and other bases. But they have also struck Novorossiysk, and they've also struck a, a Russian oil tanker that was being used uh, by the military. And so uh, that deterrence worked, also because, all in all, for Russia, Black Sea export is more significant than it is for Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine, after all, had spent, you know, more than a year without much use of the Black Sea, whereas for Russia, you know, Novorossiysk is Russia's biggest port. And it's critical for Russia. Uh, and the whole reason why Ukraine is has been, you know, developing its drone capabilities and flying all these missions into Russia was to create the same, a similar bargaining chip. You know, if you stop with stuff. But obviously, right now it's not working because Russia's actual capability is orders of magnitude stronger than whatever the Ukrainians can do inside Russia. And and again, this is a result of political 
decisions made not in Ukraine. Let me ask you about the elections. It is not very clear to everyone that this war is going to last for a while. It's not going to end this year, may not even end next year. So how long can Zelensky keep saying that as long as the war goes on, we cannot hold elections? And obviously, holding elections at wartime is very difficult logistically. But at the same time, you lose your democratic legitimacy if this war goes on, let's say, for another five years. And you do not have a referendum on the leadership. You do not have a political debate about the direction of the war and the leadership of the war. And at the same time, you have the juxtaposition of elections being held in Russia. And yes, Putin has eliminated opposition. Almost certainly there will be rigging of that election. But nevertheless, he can go to the world, particularly the global south, and say, I'm a democratically elected leader. In Ukraine, they don't even hold elections. So for both domestic purposes to allow people to have a voice about the direction of this war, but also for international legitimacy, do you think that there's going to be more and more pressure on him to acquiesce and figure out a way to hold these elections? You know, it's, it's an issue of weighing the two things. And if we look at history, you know, the United Kingdom did not have elections. Uh, until the war in Europe was over. You know, Churchill stayed way past, you know, the, the, the term of the British Parliament. They kept extending its term. Although they had a coalition government, which they don't in Ukraine, right? Well, I mean, we can, I mean, it depends how you look at it. You know, the current Minister of Defense, Rostel Manov, was elected to Parliament from a different party. And no British soil was occupied by foreign power. In Ukraine now, we have 18% of the country under occupation. We have several million displaced people, many of them outside the country. So, uh, and more importantly, you have legislation that forbids holding elections as long as there is martial law. And martial law gets renewed every few months by parliament. Parliament is in session. And if if the members of parliament were to feel like Zelensky is overstaying his welcome and an election has to be held, all they have to do is to not extend the, uh, the martial law. But, uh, but of course, his party controls the parliament, right? His party controls the parliament, but, it, you know, it's it's a party that came together for the election in 2019. And, you know, once in parliament, many of his lawmakers changed their affiliation, as we have seen with the current Minister of Defense. Uh, so uh, if there were a popular pressure to change things and have an election, many of these lawmakers would have followed their constituents. But I think now... It's just not there. Maybe in six months, maybe in a year. And honestly, nobody's really taking Russian elections seriously. So it's not even a comparison. But I think the, con- the consensus for now is that an election would just be too divisive and would weaken Ukraine uh, militarily. That can change. But I just don't see politics reviving just yet, especially now that Ukraine faces some of its darkest moments with you know the American aid basically coming to a halt. And... and the Russians again talking about you know taking Kiev. So speaking of that, you still have a very active debate in Congress about the supplemental bill that is essential to providing both offensive but most critically defensive weapons for Ukraine, air defense, artillery to hold off the Russians. 
what is the feeling that you're you're getting now out of Kiev now that that bill has been held up in Congress for several months and its prospects remain very unclear? Zelensky publicly says there's no plan B. Do you believe him? And how can you not have a plan B? Because, you know, at best, you ch- the chance of this bill passing may be 50-50 if you are being generous. Well, I think when he says there is no plan B, it means there is no plan B strategically. You know, I mean, at the time where Russia denies the existence of Ukrainian statehood, pretty much, at the time where Putin says, you know, Odessa is a Russian city, you know, there's only plan A resisting. Hold your ground as much as you can. Advance if you can, but pro- I, I think right now, this year, it's the Russians who are on the advance and the Ukrainians try to hold on to whatever it has. Without American funding, it means, what does it mean? It means that Ukraine has an even bigger shortage of ammunition. Russia has an even bigger advantage in ammunition and more Ukrainian lives are lost to hold on to what Ukraine has. So this delay is measured in just lives of soldiers, not necessarily in territory so far. Uh, obviously, there are the Europeans who are, some of whom are trying to step in and and make up for some of that shortfall in American aid. It's not enough, but it's also something. It's not nothing. And uh, I think the feeling in Ukraine overall is that Ukraine is a hostage in a political drama in Washington. And for many people making decisions about life and death of Ukrainians, decisions are based on things that have nothing to do with Ukraine, like border security. So where do you see that things going? This year obviously is going to be tough, even if the bill passes. You still have Russian fire advantages because they're both production capacity vis-a-vis the West this year, as well as acquisition of munitions from North Korea and Iran. So... You know, they may have a possibility of going on the offensive again, maybe late this year, early next year. But do you think the country is ready for a potentially multi-year war, one that can last for half a decade, maybe a decade? Well, I mean, nobody's ready for a multi-year war, but I think there is a resignation that that is what's going to happen and there is not much of a choice here. You know, it's multi-year war or surrender. You know, it's been two years now almost, and uh, I don't see anything in the dynamic of this conflict suggesting a fast resolution on terms that would be acceptable to the Ukrainians or the West. And if you look at it from the Russian perspective, from the Russian legal perspective, at least the political perspective, you know, after the annexation, so-called annexation of the four Ukrainian regions, all the fighting is currently on the territory of the Russian Federation as per Russian law. And I just don't see how Putin can accept freezing the conflict when two capitals of Russian regions, Zaporizhia and Kherson, and I'm saying Russian in quote marks, are quote-unquote occupied by the Ukrainian Nazis, quote-unquote. And so uh, before the Russians stop, they have at the very minimum retake Kherson and Zaporizhia, retake Kherson and takes up region, which is, they, they have not actually held. Although it is interesting that when he announced the annexations in September of 2022, there was this famous concert in Moscow talking about how Kherson will be forever ours. And then just a couple of months later, Kherson is abandoned. And you actually don't hear much talk about Kherson in Moscow, even te- though technically it is the capital of one of the Russian regions, again, in quotes, 
but they sort of forgotten about it, right? So on paper, it is Russian. It, Russian. I know they forgot. I mean, they, you know, in all the Russian textbooks, you know, the border of the Russian Federation uh, on the map, you know, is includes Kherson and includes the city of Zaporizhia. So all the rhetoric from the Russian media is that we're defending our motherland. Uh, so, uh, but also they also talk about, you know, Kharkiv and Odessa and, and Mikhailov being Russian cities and Kiev. So it's a, it's a fluid, I think basically they will go as far as they can. Of, of course, Putin also says that Russia's borders do not end anywhere. So he could be flexible on that point. But I, I think the main point that the Ukrainians understand, though, is even if he freezes the conflict now, it is simply a temporary reprieve until they can rebuild and go again, right? And that's the real reason why any sort of freeze or ceasefire is a losing proposition for Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely, because you know what Putin needs to do, what the Russian army needs to do, is to rebuild, uh, and they have the industrial base to do so. Ukraine doesn't, and you know any pause during which Russia just bulks up and prepares for the next round, uh, while demanding that Ukraine doesn't do so would be just a recipe for a Ukrainian defeat down the road. Last question before we wrap up. One challenge I see, sort of looking out a year or two into this conflict that can very likely continue for at least that long, is that even if you get the supplemental past, $60 billion and change for Ukraine, it's almost certainly going to be the last bill of this magnitude that you can pass through U.S. Congress, right? The idea that you can get support for another 60 billion in a year or two just doesn't seem likely regardless of who even wins the presidency in November. So what are you hearing in Kiev about that? I understand that they're sort of living day to day and they're very much focused on current supplemental, but you know, if you're going to take the approach that this might be the very last large bill we get, it might impact how you decide to spend it right? And to stretch it out for as long as possible. Are you seeing that realization on Bankova Street or in the Ukrainian military? I think I think I am. And also, obviously, the there is also a new focus on Ukraine's indigenous capabilities. And it's much cheaper to do some things at home than to buy them. And, you know, we have had this appointment of commission who used to run the railways as the Minister of Military Industries, uh, precisely because that is that is now the focus of, uh, of strategic efforts, you know, including making drones. Uh, <laughs> will Ukraine be successful in that? It's hard to say, also because these industries are vulnerable to Russian missile attacks. How vulnerable would I know? Uh, because damage from the strikes is obviously classified. Um, Ukraine doesn't necessarily need in a defensive posture as much as it would have needed for an offensive. But I think overall, it looks increasingly likely that this conflict will be resolved possibly not on the battlefield, but by which of the two societies outlasts the other, by internal cohesion. And, you know, we've seen these cracks in the Russian system last year after Bakhmut with Prigozhin. We don't know what other cracks may appear in the coming month because it's all opaque and hidden and there's zero transparency. We obviously know the fissures in Ukrainian society and politics that under pressure could turn into cracks. And 
And here, Western aid is crucial in making sure it's not the Ukraine that implodes first. Well, on that note, we're going to end it there. The book is Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Terrific book. I highly recommend it. You can find it at all of your online and local bookstores. Please check it out. And while you're doing that, I hope you check out my upcoming book, World on the Brink, America Can Be China in the Race for the 21st Century. Yaro, thanks so much for coming on, and I look forward to reading a lot more of your reporting in the Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.